I wonder how long you've lived in your current place of residence. I did the maths and I worked out that I've moved home on average every three and a quarter years since I was born. Three and a quarter years. Which, when you consider I'm in my current house for almost seven years, um, means uh, uh, I was at a much faster rate prior to settling down in sunny Lindisfarne. And why would you ever go anywhere else once you'd come to Lindisfarne, am I right? Others of you uh, might come with a uh, better average than that. You might be a little bit more settled. I know when I... Uh, met Elisa, she had only lived in one home for her entire life and then we got married and I started stuffing up her average. Uh, now, I'm led to believe, as I'm slowly starting to experience here in Lindisfarne, that when you live in a house for a long time, you can really start to get comfortable in it, can't you? You can start to think about how it is that you want the, your house to become your home. You can invest in a renovation. You can buy the perfect width couch or the perfect length table that fits exactly in the room that it is going to be in for the rest of it and your life together in your home. When you've lived somewhere a long time, your house isn't just a house, is it? It becomes your home. And the home in which you dwell begins to reflect something of who you are and the things that you like and, and value. You walk into our house or our home behind the church here and the first thing you'll see on the left is some pictures of uh, students in Cambodia because one, Elisa took them and they're really good photos and two, because it tells something about who we are and the things that we value and that we want to be reminded about. As we reflect on Paul's prayer in this part of Ephesians, the second half of chapter 3, what we see is a prayer for Christ to make his home in us. And just as a house takes on the character of its occupants, so too we ought to take on the character of Christ as Christ dwells in us and makes himself at home in our hearts. Uh, that prayer for Christ to dwell in us is a prayer for us to be transformed. But before we uh, look at that, let's look at the, the why it is that Paul prays. Why is it that Paul turns to prayer at this point in the letter? He's, you see, as he opens this section, verse 14, he starts with, for this reason. So he's telling us, there's a reason why I'm praying. Well, what is the reason? Well, if you track back to the start of chapter 3 and verse 1, you see Paul again says, for this reason. Uh, and what I think is going on is, I think Paul it was about to sort of say that he prays, but he gets sort of sidetracked at the start of chapter 3 to talk about how his own experience of the grace of God mirrors that of what the Ephesians have had. He was about to say, for this reason I pray, but he says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of, uh, of, uh, a prisoner for the, of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, instead of saying pray, he says, he goes on to, to sort of explain his journey. So we need to keep tracking back to see what is the reason that's leading Paul to pray. 
And the reason, I think, is there back in chapter 2. The idea that God has made us alive in Christ, that we've been resurrected with Christ, that we've gone from death to life. And specifically, one of the fruits of that is that now people who are different, specifically in the Ephesians case, Jews and Gentiles, can come together and find peace. And it was this coming together of Jew and Gentile uh, under the power and grace of God that Paul gets distracted to talk about how that's worked out in his own life before he leads on to this prayer. And so it's the saving work of Christ, the grace of God in Christ Jesus that brings unity to those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that it is this reality, it is this reason that Paul prays. That is, he prays because of who God is and what God has done. Which leads me to wonder, why is it that you or I pray? What is it that sends us to our knees? For many of us, prayer is our go-to operation when we've reached our own capacity. That is, we pray when we're feeling like life is a little bit out of our control. There's an old saying in the military that there are no atheists in foxholes. That is, when things are really bad and life is really on the line, even the atheists start praying. But unfortunately, it can be a bit like that for the Christian too, that we don't start praying until things get really bad or until there are things that we really want that we don't seem to be able to get ourselves. Now, hopefully, we're not all like that, or hopefully we're not like that all the time. But let me encourage you today to let your prayers spring, not from your experience of how your life is going, but from your understanding and experience of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That is, we want our prayer to spring from our theology. We want our prayer to be motivated and inspired by understanding who God is, the amazing thing God, God has done for us in Christ. And when that leads us to prayer, we ought to go to prayer often and regularly, because we ought to be often and regularly amazed about who God is and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So let's pray that it be our knowledge of God that fuels our prayer, just as it was for Paul. For this reason, for who God is, for bringing God's people from death to life and for allowing them to experience unity in the gospel when they were once enemies, for this reason, I pray. And before we think about what he prays, again, Paul gives us another clue here about the kind of, or the way he prays. We know why he prays. How does he pray? Well, he says, verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. As Paul prays, he takes a posture of humility before God. Now, this is quite interesting, isn't it? Because 
literally only verses ago, Paul has told us that we can approach God, have a look at verse 12, in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God, what? With freedom and confidence. And yet, as Paul then goes to God, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like or look like confidence, does it? Humble, it looks more like humility. So what's going on here? How do we put these two things together and what should our approach to God be like? Well, I think what we have here is uh, what I might call confident humility. That is, there are ways to be confident that are arrogant and there are ways to be confident that are not. We're not to go to God confidently, meaning we go arrogantly, meaning we think, hey God, great news, Chris Bowditch has decided to talk to you today, uh, thought, it might, thought you might be happy to hear from me. That's not the kind of confidence we're called to go to God with. It's a confident humility, a confidence in who God is, a confidence in what God has done. We want confident humility, not the arrogance of confidence. I was trying to think of an illustration uh, for you that kind of uh, gets at what I'm talking about here. And the best I've come up with, though it not, it's not perfect, is the difference between Nick Kyrgios and Roger Federer. Nick Kyrgios, I kind of like him, but he's, he's, a, he's a bit of an arrogant fellow, isn't he? he the way he plays his trick shots, uh, the way he talks, the way he gets the crowd involved, he's got a lot of confidence, but he expresses it in a kind of arrogant way. Roger Federer, on the other hand, though he's retired now, was probably the greatest player of all time. Debatable, I know. But nonetheless, he was extremely confident as well, and yet he had a humility about him. Now, of course, both of them had confidence in themselves, which is where the analogy falls down, because we want confidence in God, not in ourselves. But nonetheless, the manner in which they go about uh, expressing their confidence, I think, works. We want to be confident in God, and, but expressing ourselves humbly before him. Confidence with humility. That's how we should be before God. So the question for you then is, do you think confident humility is an accurate description of your attitude when you go to prayer? Do you come before God because of who he is and because of what he's done, confidently, yet humbly? Or is there something else going on in your heart? I'll just leave that with you to think and pray about this week. So we know why Paul prays. He prays because of who God is and because of what God's done. And we know that he takes this attitude of confident humility. Now we get to thinking about then what does Paul pray for this church? And as, as I mentioned at the start, it's a prayer 
for Christ to come and dwell in the hearts of the Ephesians and to transform them. It's a prayer for them to live resurrection lives for God's glory. Paul prays first, I pray, verse 16, that out of the riches, uh, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asking in this verse that God would continue to make himself at home in the hearts and lives of the believer. And we know that this matches with what Paul's already said in chapter 2, verse 22, that Christians are dwellings in which God lives by his spirit. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And Paul's now praying that Christ by his spirit would, would work this out in the lives of the Ephesians, that he would make himself at home in their lives. Uh, and in fact, the very word that Paul has used there for dwell speaks of the idea of someone really making themselves at home, not just a guest, but, 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 but really living there. Paul's praying that Christ by his spirit will settle down in the hearts of the believer and from there both control and strengthen them. You see, our power to live as Christians comes not from within ourselves, but from God within us, dwelling in us by his spirit and making us to become more like Jesus. The Christian belief is that in fact we need Christ to come and take over us in order that we can live the kind of lives God's called us to live. We cannot do it on our, by ourselves and in our own strength. We need the empowering work of Christ living in us by his spirit. And so Paul prays that that would happen. He also prays that this would happen so that they can live lives grounded in love. And I pray halfway through verse 17, that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You remember that Paul is drawn to prayer because of his knowledge of who God is and what God is doing through Christ. And you'll remember that what God is doing is bringing together enemies. He's making them friends in Christ. He's bringing together Jew and Gentile, people who normally wouldn't hang out together and now in Christ find themselves uh, in the same homes, worshipping the same God. And so, of course, they need Christ to dwell in them, to grow in them love for all people. You imagine you've spent your life thinking those filthy Gentiles uh, and all of a sudden you're in church together. No human being can, change, can, can e easily switch from hatred to love, but with the power of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, they can. 
The church does not work unless Christ takes hold of each and every one of us and grows in us a love for one another, a love that comes from Christ, a love that enables us to love those whom otherwise we might find unlovable. And this, let me tell you, will be both attractive and repulsive to the world outside us. It'll be attractive because who doesn't love a place that is filled with love and that accepts people? And it'll be repulsive because we can love even the unlovable here. Not in our strength, but with the help of God. There are people who the world thinks should not be loved, that should be rejected, that have done too many bad things and have had too many chances and just need to be cut off. But we can love them because Christ loves them, because Christ is in us and by his spirit we live out his power. It's a powerful prayer. And it's a prayer we need to keep praying so that we'll love each other well and so that we'll love our neighbours and our community well too. Finally, Paul prays for them that they be filled with the fullness of God. Halfway through verse 19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's a pretty big prayer, isn't it? Think about God... It's pretty big. Imagine having the fullness of God fill us. His prayer here finishes that Christ would dwell in the in the believer, that that would grow in them a love for others, and there and that they would have the fullness of God. That is, I think, a prayer for them to grow in godliness. When we put our faith in Christ we begin a journey towards eternity. And when Christ returns or when we die, whichever comes first, we, we, we reach perfection. But until that point, we're, we're on a journey of what we call sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus. And I think Paul's prayer that for us to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God is a prayer that the Ephesians might experience more of their sanctification. That that is, they might experience a little bit more in their lives of what it's going to be like when they get to heaven. That they'll become more like Christ. They'll grow in their godliness. He's praying ultimately that we experience all the fullness of God that Christ has himself. And we'll experience that little bit by little bit more until Christ returns. Well, that's a pretty big prayer, isn't it? It's a big prayer for Paul to pray, that, that, that the uh, Ephesians would be strengthened with power through the Spirit, that they'd be grounded in the love of Christ for each other and that they'd be filled with the fullness of God. Can God really do that? Can God really dwell in you and change you to be more loving? Can you really experience more of his fullness day by day? 
It almost sounds too good to be true. Is it even possible that God could answer this kind of prayer? Well, Paul rounds out his prayer by reminding the Ephesians, yes, indeed, it's possible and more. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Yes, indeed, it is possible. God can do more than we ask or imagine. Paul is not asking anything of God that he cannot do because God can do immeasurably more. God will answer Paul's prayer and work powerfully in the lives of the Ephesian church and in our lives too by transforming them and changing them and bringing them to live lives that bring him glory. God can answer this prayer. And God has been answering our prayers too, hasn't he, as a church? We've been reminded of this part, end of this prayer that Paul prays here uh, at several points throughout our journey over the last uh, five or six years. We've been praying that God would grow us, that we would be a church for Lindisfarne making disciples of Jesus. We've been praying that God would glorify himself through us. We've been praying that God would grow us spiritually in the way that Paul has prayed in this prayer. We've been praying that through us, God might cause others to find faith in him, and they are. We've been praying that God would transform us into a community that loves like Jesus loves, and he is. He's doing all that and more. Our prayers will always be too small because God can do immeasurably more. I remember hearing the bishop speak about uh, his time as the rector of his previous church and he said when he started there they prayed, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but they prayed for something like 20 missionaries to be raised up in that church to go and serve overseas. And he said, when I left, we had done uh, 22 or something like that. And he thought, how good was that? God answers prayers. And his point was, why didn't I pray for 50? Because God can do immeasurably more. What are your prayers for your life? for your family, for your friends, for your workplace, and for this church? Are they big enough? Because we need God to continue to grow us. We need God to continue to strengthen us. We need God to continue to make himself at home in our hearts by his spirit so that we can be transformed and enabled to live sacrificial lives of love. Let me encourage you 
to pray confident, humble prayers for God to do immeasurably more than we could ask and imagine in our lives. Just as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, so may it be true of us that God may strengthen us with his power, dwell in us more fully, grow us in his love and fill us with his fullness. All for his glory for every generation. Amen. Amen.